have it your way. This was Burger King's slogan since their beginning. Perhaps you can remember the jingle. I won't sing it because it's my first time here, but maybe you can remember the tune in your head. Have it your way. Have it your way. Have it your way at Burger King. Hold the pickles. Hold the lettuce. Special orders don't upset us. All we ask is that you let us serve it your way. Maybe, uh, maybe some of you can even finish the tune in your mind. And it's actually been stuck in my head all week as I've been preparing for this, so you're welcome. In 1991, though, they adopted just for two years the slogan, Your Way, Right Away. And in many ways, this slogan captures the mentality of the 20th and 21st century. With the beginnings of the telephone and the radio at the end of the 19th century, the first commercial flight in 1914, the television in 1927, the microwave in 1946, America was discovering more and more ways to have it your way right away. We could communicate, access news and entertainment, travel, and heat food in a fraction of the time it once took us. But we didn't stop there. Today, we can see a doctor virtually the same day we schedule an appointment. You can have your Burger King Whopper, fries, and a Coke brought to your doorstep in 20 minutes through services like DoorDash and Uber Eats. You can avoid busy aisles and long lines by ordering your groceries ahead of time and having them brought to the back of your car. And not only that, not only do we have dozens of milk, bread, soup, and cereal options, but we have our pick of Meyer, Sam's Club, Kroger, Aldi, Walmart, Trader Joe's, Fresh Time, Costco, Target, Gordon Food Services, and I need to move on. And lastly, Amazon now has what's called same-day delivery. You can order your dial soap or the next book in the C.S. Lewis series of Narnia in the morning and have it brought to your doorstep in the evening. And all of these things shout, have it your way right away. Convenience is not a bad thing, but the slogan that characterizes our culture, your way, right away, like glasses with a blue tint, inevitably colors the way that we see God and colors the way we see his work in our lives. So we can go to Starbucks drive through and we can order an iced coffee with one ounce of sugar-free vanilla flavor, an ounce of hazelnut flavor, two ounces of caramel flavor, and what's called a, one ounce of a skinny mocha. I don't know what that is. And you can order a splash of soy milk, and then you can have it double blended. And as we drive away with our highly customized drink, we think to ourselves that we are bad Christians or there's something wrong with us because we're still struggling with bitterness towards a family member, or we doubt that God is really good, or that we've been praying and praying for our child or grandchild, but it seems like the more we pray, the farther away they get from the Lord. Can we see the connection here? We live in a highly customized culture, so we inevitably think that we have a highly customizable Christianity. Or to say it another way, because God doesn't work in the ways we think he should work, we assume something's either wrong with God or more often we think there's something wrong with us. So your way right away, this slogan, is great when you need AA batteries this evening. You can order them after church, but it's detrimental to our relationship with the Lord. So what's the answer? Our passage today. How about that? This morning, we'll see that God's slogan, if you will, 
is my way in my time for your good and my glory. To that end, please bow with me as I pray. Heavenly Father, we do need your help this morning. I pray that you'd give us ears to listen. I pray that you'd give us hearts to receive the truth from your word. Father, I pray that as a result of looking at your word today, we would love Jesus more and that we would walk away with greater adoration for who he is and what he has accomplished on behalf of his people. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Please find in your Bibles Genesis 23. By way of aside, we're not skipping Genesis 22. Rather, we're playing a type of homiletical leapfrog. And Pastor Dave will come next week and preach Genesis 22. And there's no special reason for this. It's just how the schedule landed. As we consider Genesis 23, remember that in the last 10 chapters of Genesis, we have witnessed God's gracious and faithful dealings with Abraham. He has made, he has made promise on six different occasions to bless him with descendants and lands. The content and structure of Genesis 23 are rather straightforward. As for the content, it details the legal process of property transfer from the Hittites to Abraham. As for the structure, there are three main sections. First, the situation. Second, the transaction. And third, the resolution. Our time will be divided into three parts based on those structural pieces. And we'll, what we'll do instead of reading the whole chapter at the beginning is we'll read each section and then I'll make comments on it as we go. And as a final prefacing note, the title of this sermon, if you're taking notes, The Seemingly Mundane Ways of Our Perfectly Faithful God. Again, The Seemingly Mundane Ways of Our Perfectly Faithful God. Because in this rather straightforward and perhaps strange chapter, we'll see that, God, that our God in perfect faithfulness, goodness, and wisdom works in ways that we might call slow-moving or mundane to accomplish His promises. Particularly, God begins fulfilling in this chapter a promise to Abraham, but He doesn't do it Abraham's way, and He doesn't do it right away. To that end, let's consider the first section the situation. Look with me at Genesis 23, 1 through 2. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. What is the situation? Sarah has died. Abraham's wife has died. Before commenting on Sarah's death, however, the author makes mention of her life. She lived 127 years and was indeed blessed. Not only did she get the chance to bear a son in her old age after a life of infertility, which in and of itself is a joy I don't think we can comprehend, 99 years and then a son. But she also got to watch her son, her only son, grow up to be a 37-year-old man. But like the inevitable descent of the sun in the coming of night, death came to Sarah. And whenever we see death in the scriptures, whether it's in the scriptures or in our own lives, it's like the ominous but well-known beat of a drum before an execution. The bum, bum, ba-da-ba-da-ba-da-ba-da-bum. And we are reminded of Genesis 3, 
where death is introduced as a, the curse that afflicts humanity because of our rebellion against God, with our father Adam leading the charge. And for all the thousands of years that have passed since Genesis 3, whenever we're confronted with death, it's a piercing reminder that we still live under the unbearable and inescapable weight of the curse, which culminates in death. Abraham felt this sting acutely and responded appropriately. See his response at the end of verse verse 2, mourning and weeping. By way of brief application, it's a very good and human thing to weep in the face of death. We are pressured by a culture, and even maybe by other Christians, to ignore the tremendous grief that comes with death. But nowhere in Scripture will you find this behavior commended. It is a good thing to weep because your spouse died, to weep because a child died, to weep because a friend died. It is a good thing. You are not a bad Christian because it still hurts a decade later. In fact, it will hurt. It will hurt until Jesus comes again to make everything good, right, and whole again. So weep in the face of death. Grieve because this is not how it should be. But also long all the more for Jesus to return and undo all the weight weight and effects of the curse. In verses 1 through 2, we saw the situation for the rest of the chapter. Sarah has died. We turn our attention now to the second section, the transaction. And you'll notice that this, this section takes up a bulk of the chapter, so we'll spend a little more time here. Should it be helpful, there are three interchanges that we'll read about between Abraham and the Hittites. So we'll read Abraham, Hittites, Abraham, Hittites, Abraham, Hittites. Look with me at verses 3 through 18. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burial place that I may bury my dead, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. So the Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose up and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as a a property for a burying burying place." Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. 
So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that, that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area were made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. Perhaps our first question is, why is this in the Bible? Realistically, unless your job is in real estate and, or unless you just have a peculiar love for it, you, I don't suppose you venture to spend your free time reading about escrow accounts and deeds and closings. But I will say, my wife and I are in the process of looking for a house right now. And after five months, we wish the process was as easy as it seems here in this chapter. But having read this large section, verses 3 through 18, let's consider two major emphases in it. The first major emphasis you probably noticed was on the, the dead and the burying of the dead. Throughout the transaction, the dead is mentioned seven times, and references to burying the dead are also made seven times. And both of these terms are made in the mouth of Abraham and in the mouth of the Hittites. And there is no, con no confusion about what they mean, demonstrating that this, this reality of burying the dead was a transcultural reality. Both, at least the Hittites had this practice, which was Abraham's home culture, and, excuse me, at least the Chaldeans had this practice of burying the dead, which was Abraham's home culture, and then the Hittites did as well. There's no confusion as to what they're talking about here. But why such an emphasis on the dead and the burying of the dead? Have you even thought about where, like, burying the dead and where this practice comes from? What's fascinating is that many, and perhaps most cultures, bury their dead or preserve their dead, their dead, preserve their dead bodies in some way through mummification is an example of that. Those who practice the alternative, though, like cremation, mainly in Japanese or Indian cultures, do so because of the deep-seated religious beliefs of Buddhism, thinking that cremation aids in the transmigration of the soul, which, that is, reincarnation. The first recorded cremation actually comes around 700 AD, which is after the growth and development of Buddhism a few hundred years earlier. That, however, doesn't explain why it's so popular in the West. The Cremation Association of North America recorded that in 1958, so around the time when all those inventions were coming up, less than 4% of Americans were cremated. But in 2020, over 50% were cremated in the United States and over 70% were cremated in Canada. And they explain the substantial increase in popularity is due to significant changes in religious expectations, geography, beliefs, and families of many Americans. Some Americans are choosing cremation over traditional burial for pragmatic reasons. It's less expensive. It's less cumbersome. It requires less planning. But others, because of their beliefs, say things like, what's the big deal? After I'm gone, after I'm dead, I'm just going to cease to exist. So what does it matter what I do with my body? The Cremation Association of North America identifies, they have identified, that the popularity of cremation increases as the popularity of Christianity decreases. That's fascinating. This secular organization can recognize that. And what this tells us is that the burial of the dead is fueled largely by religious convictions. 
but religious convictions in what? The resurrection. Historically, when people have buried their dead, it's been a sign of hope that they will be raised from the dead. And this is true even in Genesis. The hope of resurrection is already there in earlier chapters of Genesis. When the Lord casts Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, he doesn't destroy the tree of life, but he actually protects it. And instead, in faith, in faith of God's promises, Adam, do you remember what he named his wife? He named his wife Eve. But did you notice in Genesis 3, he names his wife Eve, which means life giver, after the curse of death. So this is, Abraham, this is Adam placing faith in God's promise that God would bring life again after death by naming his wife Eve. And then shifting back to Abraham now, the New Testament letter to the Hebrews makes it clear that Abraham, in chapter 22 of Genesis, which you'll cover next week, when he was going to offer his son on the altar, the letter of Hebrews explains that he believed then in the resurrection. This is amazing. The resurrection is the reason that people in the past have buried their dead. The first major emphasis of the transaction is the emphasis on the dead and the burying of the dead. This emphasis is there because Abraham was hoping in faith for a resurrection from the dead, that Sarah would one day be raised. Now, there are three applications from this first major emphasis. One, Scripture does not condemn cremation as a sin. Rather, it's a matter of the conscience. So that, that means that the burden it is on us and our families to think seriously and biblically about what we choose to do and why we choose to do it. One factor to consider is that historically, the hope in resurrection has been, has communicated, is communicated through the act of burying the dead. The second point of application from this first major emphasis, do you believe in the resurrection? Of course, our gut reaction is a resounding, yes, of course. But sometimes we're quicker to affirm with our words what our actions might deny. So let me ask it this way. When you pray, are your prayers flavored with the hope of the resurrection? Are your conversations colored by the hope of the resurrection? Would a non-Christian friend or coworker say, I don't really understand why, but this, this guy or gal is always talking about being raised from the dead or like a better life after this one. Would a non-Christian friend say that about you? Do your time investments or your financial investments reflect that you know your hope is in the resurrection? Or maybe a, a better question would be to ask, if a stranger looked at a budget of how you spend your time, a budget of how you spend your money, would they say, what would they say is important to you? Would they say, eh, looks like the average, Chris, uh, the average American to me. There are lots of movies, TV, news, sports, entertainment. There's some leisure. Or would the person look at that and say, huh, I see work, I see enter some entertainment, some leisure, but there's something different about this. This person is very intentional and generous with their time and their money. Now, of course, unbelievers can be generous with their money and their time, but 
Christians are, are or ought to be marked by a exceeding generosity. We ought to give until it hurts because such generosity, namely Christ being tortured unto death on a wooden cross, such generosity is what affords us the title Christian. Now perhaps this question, do you hope in the resurrection, you answer with a yes. And if so, I rejoice. I rejoice for God's grace in your life. You know the sweetness of looking forward to something much better than this life. You, you see the hardships colored with hope. Now, if you're having trouble letting the resurrection be so influential in your life, I urge you and, to, and encourage you to share this fact with another Christian. Share it with one of the pastors here. Let them join you in searching the scriptures and in praying that you might know a similar joy of having all of life colored by the reality of the resurrection. Or even pray right now that God would begin to open your eyes and let the, the hope of the resurrection permeate all of life. Now the last, the third and last application for this text, for this emphasis flows out of this last point about the resurrection. We haven't answered the question, how can we have hope in the resurrection? Well, the reason we can have hope in the resurrection is something I just mentioned earlier about Christ, who was tortured, beaten, bruised, and bloodied for the sake of his people. But he did not stay dead. And we know this, and we rejoice in this. This is why we can have such great hope. Because when we talk about the resurrection, we're simply following in the footsteps of our older brother and savior, Jesus. But with all this talk about the resurrection, perhaps you realize maybe for the first time or it's been in your mind for a while now that you don't hope in the resurrection. And maybe one of the reasons you don't hope in the resurrection is because you've been hoping in just about anything else, whether it's a relationship, a career, success, the future plans, or maybe your life hasn't been going the way that you want it to go. And you've been filled with bitterness towards God. And you've come to the point where you say, I could never believe a God who treats me like this. So you're realizing maybe for the first time, or maybe you've known this for a while, that you do not hope in the resurrection because you've never truly turned from your sinfulness, from your rebellion, and trusted in Christ. If that's the case, Christ has a word for you today. Believe. Place your faith and your complete trust in Christ, in the hope of the resurrection. And, and, and the Lord will begin to change your heart, give you new affections, can change your heart to love and look forward to the resurrection. If that's the case, turn from your sin today and trust in Christ today and let us rejoice with you. Abraham's hope in the resurrection led him to want to bury his wife, so he sought from the Hittites a burial place. Briefly, the second major emphasis we see in this, in this uh, particular section, the transaction section, is the publicness of it. Did you notice when we were reading comments like, in the hearing of the Hittites and before the people of the land. Well, we saw it in verse 7, in verse 10, in verse 11, in verse 12, verse 13, 
and verse 16, verse 18. We also read comments about those at the city gate who were witnessing this transaction in verses 10 and 18. And then we also saw Abraham insisting on paying the full price for the land in verses 9. And then he did succeed in verse 16 without bartering or trying to get a better deal. And in verse 16, it even specifies that at the end of the verse that Abraham was using weights that were current among merchants. Now we ask the question, all these details, what's the purpose of them? Well, in this particular case, the author is going out of his way, going above and beyond to show you, the reader, that this transaction is public. This transaction is public, and therefore it's official. In the eyes of the Hittites, in the eyes of the people of the surrounding nation, Abraham owns a piece of land in Canaan. So the second major emphasis is the publicness of this, which communicates this is official. Abraham owns a piece of land in Canaan. In verses one through two, we saw the situation for the rest of the chapter, namely that Sarah has died. In verses three through eight, we saw the transaction where Abraham purchased for full price a piece of property from the Hittites. We turn our attention now to the third and final section, the resolution. Look with me at verses 19 through 20. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is, in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. In these final two verses, not only do we have the resolution where Abraham finally buried Sarah in, in his newly purchased property, but also, like the final chapter of a well-written novel, the loose ends are tied and find their conclusion. And our questions are answered. You could sit back in your recliner, close your eyes with a smile, and sigh with contentment. It is in these two verses where the, where the main point that we, where the main point becomes clear, that God, in faithfulness, in goodness, and wisdom, works in ways that we might call slow-moving or mundane to accomplish His promises. Particularly, it's in these two verses that we see God began to fulfill His promise to Abraham, but He didn't do it in Abraham's way, and He didn't do it right away. What pulls all these pieces together is a promise God reiterated, to, God reiterated to Abraham in chapter 17 of Genesis. If you're using a Bible, flip back a few pages to chapter 17 of Genesis, and once, once you're there, find verse 8. Look with me now at verse 8. And I will give to you, this is God to Abraham, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. In this verse, God mentions the land of Abraham's sojournings, which God specified is the land of Canaan. And in this verse, God said that he would give these lands to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants as an everlasting possession. All three of these details, mainly this comment about sojourning, the emphasis on the land of Canaan, and then the word possession, 
are emphasized in Genesis 23. Now you can turn back to Genesis 23 if you are in Genesis 17. In verse 4 of Genesis 23, Abraham identified himself as a sojourner. The author went out of his way to specify that Sarah died in the land of Canaan, in verse 2, and to specify that Abraham purchased property was in the land of Canaan, in verse 19. The last emphasized detail, the word possession, but it's a playing kind of hide-and-go-seek in our, in our Bibles, in our English translations. For those unfamiliar, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew and then translated to English. So when Abraham asked for a burying place in verse 4, and then when he officially owned the property for a burying place in verse 20, the term burying place included the Hebrew word for possession, the same word used in Genesis 17, 8, when God was promising to Abraham to give him all the land of Canaan. In this story, Genesis 23, God began to deliver on his promise of all the land of Canaan. But what an unexpected way to do it, through a graveyard. How interesting that the first piece of property that Abraham legally owned was a graveyard. As God reiterated his promise to Abraham, I'm sure Abraham, in in verse 17, I'm sure Abraham was not thinking to himself that God would begin to answer this promise through the death of his wife. And yet, in God's faithfulness, goodness, and wisdom, this was God's way and in God's timing. Also, God could have rained down fire on the Hittites We saw that earlier in Genesis and then all the surrounding nations. And he could have delivered the land to to Abraham in that way. And yet, God chose to work through a common, tedious, back and forth, real estate transaction. Do you see this? God's ways of working in our lives are often very different from what we expect. Not only are his ways often much more slow-moving than our your way, right away hearts would want, but they are often much simpler and seemingly mundane. American culture, the news, advertisements, slogans, billboards, commercials, TV shows, music, sports, jobs, talk shows, the mall, and everything in between that is pressuring you every day with tremendous pressure to believe that we are entitled to a God who works your way right away. We would never admit that we believe, we would never admit that we believe that. But this belief is like a virus. It creeps its way into our systems through through slogans like your way right away and through customized Starbucks drinks. And it infects our spiritual systems. But what are the symptoms We think God doesn't love us. We think that there's something wrong with us. We think God is getting back at us for that time we gossiped about a fellow church member. We think God just likes making things hard for us. Or we think we are bad Christians. These are some of the initial symptoms. When this virus, though, goes untreated, it begins infecting infecting us in worse ways. Our symptoms mutate into questions like, Is the Bible even accurate when it says things like God is working all things for the good of those who love him? Maybe it got most things right, but not 
couldn't have got everything right. Or another question it might mutate into is, is Christianity even the right religion? I mean, my atheist friend, she doesn't have everything put together, but she definitely seems a lot happier than me. And when this virus has inflicted constant and untreated damage on our spiritual organs, it mutates into complete denial of Jesus. The cultural pressure to try to view God as a your way, right away God is deadly to our faith in Jesus. Genesis, 22, Genesis 23 offers a treatment plan and it comes in the form of a single truth demonstrated through a simple real estate transaction. Our God in perfect faithfulness, goodness, and wisdom works in seemingly slow and mundane ways to accomplish his promises. The first question that confronts us then is, do you know the promises of God? It's easy to think we know because we heard it from something, we heard it from something or someone, but we've never really taken the time to search the scriptures and to see for ourselves. It could be, it could be that some of your unbiblical expectations are fostered by a lack of understanding of what God has actually promised. A good example of this is the popular Philippians 4.13 that we see pasted on gym bags of athletes. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When this verse is ripped out of its context of Paul's perspective on contentment and applied to the 21st century track meet or basketball game, it's no wonder that our expectations would be crushed. We're believing in a promise that God never made. Now, if you are unfamiliar with or ill-informed about the manifold and varied promises of God, search the scriptures and study for yourself. Do it with another Christian. Trying to hope in what God has not promised is like trying to board the shadow of a boat. Splash. If you're unfamiliar with the promise, I mean, excuse me, if you are familiar with the promises of God and you do have a good understanding of what he has promised, then we can move to the second tier of this flow chart, which has two questions, one addressing timing and one addressing manner. First, timing. How has our hurried and highly customizable culture infected your expectations on when God ought to answer those promises in your life? Are you suffering on a daily basis from chronic pain? And to add insult to injury, you think that God doesn't love you because you've been praying and praying and he hasn't healed you miraculously yet? Or have you been wrestling your whole Christian life to overcome sexual temptation and to add insult to injury? You think God doesn't love you or is he upset with you because he doesn't snap his fingers and remove it from you? If that's the case, first, I grieve with you. Chronic pain and unrelenting temptation are very heavy burdens to bear. And of course, they're exhausting and all effects of the curse. Second, I grieve with you over the lies the accuser is whispering in your ears like you're not good enough or God doesn't love you or God is punishing you for that thing you did when you were in high school or college. Christian, these are lies. 
And lies like these linger and they steal just about all the energy we have. Third, you are not wrong to want or to expect deliverance from pain or temptation. These are things that God has promised for those in Christ in his time. Fourth, cling to what Genesis 23 demonstrates, that God is working in his way. To sharpen your spiritual sword, memorize Romans 8, 28 and 29. Because these verses explain that God is working all things for the good of those who love him. But here's the catch. It's good as he defines it. And what do we see that good is? It's to be conformed into the image of his son. Memorize this verse. Memorize it with a friend. And we're talking about all things. All things. And fifth, don't fight these battles alone. God has given you an army in the church. You can pray with them, rely on them, weep with them, confess to them. You can rejoice with them. And one day you will be raised with them. One day God will, will he will deliver you from this chronic pain or this, this temptation that won't let go one day. But rely on the church that God has given you. Moving to the second question of this tier, the second tier of the flowchart regarding the manner in which God chooses to work. The first one we talked about, timing. Now we're talking about the manner in which God chooses to work. If you are familiar with the promises of God and you have a good understanding of what he's promised, how has our hurried and highly customizable culture infected your expectations on how God ought to answer these promises in your life? How about his choice to sanctify you through the humble ministries of the church? We want, or excuse me, what, what, what we want, what we want is to order sinlessness on Amazon Prime this morning and have it come to our doorstep by evening and then take it like a pill. This is what our highly customizable culture and your way right away, this is what we want. We want to see miracles where we are instantly delivered from sin at the snap of a finger. And yet God has opted to work through the humble ministries of his church. Every Sunday, as you hear the preaching, praying, and singing of God's word, your soul is receiving the grace it needs to last one more week in this culture, in this world. Your soul is being shaped more into the likeness of Christ. Your appetites are changing ever so slowly. The things you love and hate are changing as you see Jesus, as you pray to Jesus, as you sing to Jesus. Consider the ways you've grown since you were a baby Christian. Are you more patient, more honest, more selfless, more loving, more joy-filled? Do you adore Jesus more today than you did last year? Think about why that is. For most of us, it's not because we woke up one day and just decided it's time. For most of us, like a real child, we've stumbled and bumbled our way through the world, making a mess as we go, a, tra a trail of toys and toilet paper in our wake. We, but little did we know that God was slowly but surely molding our little child hearts to love him more, to adore him more. What a kind and faithful God. Are you content with the seemingly mundane ways God chooses to work? Through his church, week by week, month by month, 
year by year? Or are we blinded because we are constantly looking for that miracle? Brother and sister, Jesus is working to sanctify his bride, his church. So much of God's work in our hearts is what we call mundane. In the hours we spend cooking, fixing the kitchen sink, remodeling the bathroom, meeting with coworkers, buying groceries, cleaning the house, reading a chapter of the Bible, caring for an elderly parent, hosting fellow church members at our house, doing taxes, serving in the military, praying silent pleas for help, disciplining our children again for the same things, having difficult conversations with our friends or our family. So much of the, of the ways God chooses to work are we seemingly mundane. But all of that list I just mentioned, God is working. And what's so helpful is to look back. I just wonder, as, as we're in high school or college or after college, we have our whole life planned out. But then we live five years, 10 years, 20, 30, 40. And if the older we get, we start to look back. And, and those of you who have lived the Christian life for a while, you look back on your earlier life and you think, wow, I had no idea this adventure the Lord would take me through. And perhaps if you're younger and this, you're, you're new to Christianity, ask a fellow Christian. Ask them about God's faithfulness and seemingly mundane ways to work. I know that there are manifold examples that you could even discuss over lunch. In all of these things, though, God is working to mold his people into the image of Christ. Don't underestimate his power and his wisdom. Do you know the promises of God? If so, how has our hurried and highly customizable culture infected your expectations on when and how God ought to work to answer the promises in your life? It seems as if we're in quite the predicament. On all sides, at all times, we are being bombarded with the culture slogan, your way, right away. Your way, right away. But Jesus has not left us alone. Genesis 23 demonstrates that our God in perfect faithfulness, goodness, and wisdom works in ways that we might call slow-moving or mundane to accomplish his promises. He is faithful. He is good. He is wise. His ways may seem slow. His ways may seem mundane. But in all of this, he is working. He is working for your good, Christian, and he is working for his glory. Praise God. Bow with me as I pray.